Hey, this is Brad Stahlberg, and I'm about to have a super productive conversation with Mike Vardy. Welcome to A Productive Conversation. It's me, Mike Vardy, and this time around, I am... I'm joined by Brad Stelberg. He is the author of The Practice of Groundedness. He researches, writes, and coaches on sustainable performance and well-being. This was a great conversation. It started off with Brad having to wait for me to purchase uh, tickets. I was in line for a concert. Unfortunately, a concert that's not happening now. But Brad was super patient, and we just had a fantastic conversation. I... I really enjoyed this one since we've had this conversation. I've seen him appear on Rich Roll, and he's done that a couple of times already, but Rich Roll podcast. And I have to say that, you know, there's some stuff that we talked about that really we didn't get into that he hasn't gotten into, I think, on any other place that I've heard him speak about groundedness, which we're going to really dive into. Uh, Great book, great guy, great conversation. Here's my conversation with Brad Stolberg. Enjoy. Heck, we've already started before we hit record, right, Brad? We really did. Uh, thanks for joining me today. I really appreciate it. Yeah, it's good to be here, Mike. So this has been a conversation I've wanted to have for a while. We um, Some scheduling stuff on my end ended up mucking things up. But the book is called, and I'm going to grab it over here. I've got the, if you're watching a video of this, then you'll see it's The Practice of Groundedness, man. Uh, a transformative path to success that feeds and not crushes your soul. And you've put some nice little M dashes on the side of not crushes so that it should like, to me, that was, uh, that was one of the key p- pieces right out of the game. Like, okay, people need to read this stuff because as someone who's written a lot about peak performance, I mean, that's one that to hear this idea of groundedness, it almost seems like a dichotomy of sorts. So right out of the gate, what what do you say to the person that says groundedness? It sounds like you're settling. It sounds like it's this as opposed to, you know, the stuff that you have written about when it comes to like high level performance and, and dealing with like these elite athletes, you know, like the DeMar DeRozan's, the Kevin Loves, the people that pe- that perform at high levels. Where does groundedness like how does that even fit in? Hmm. It's a really good question. So I'm glad that we're we're going to dive right into the meat and potatoes. So I have two answers. The first is you use the word dichotomy. And I think a lot of people struggle with this or that thinking, very linear. And what I argue in the book in this particular context, but I also think more broadly, is something called non-dual thinking, which is this and that. So it's not you can be grounded and focus on your foundation or you can really push and be a peak performer it's you can be grounded and focus on your foundation and really push and be a peak performer. If anything, it takes the former, the foundation, to enable the latter. The second thing is it's really important to define the time horizon and the time scale. So if I wanted to be a peak performer over 24 hours, I would not sleep, I'd crush Red Bulls and espressos, and I would, I would have the best 24 hours of my life. If I wanted to do it for a week or a month, maybe I'd sleep four hours a day, but I'd still be a lot of Red Bulls, a lot of espressos. But if I want to be a peak performer for a year or five years or a decade or a career or a lifetime, working in that way is not going to get me there. So when you take a broader time scale and when you start thinking about not just acute peak performance, but sustainable peak performance, if you don't have groundedness, if you don't have a strong foundation, you put yourself on a path to burning out. So 
we had a Twitter exchange, and I think it was you were you were chiming on something on Twitter, and fundamentals came up. You brought up the idea of sports and the process, and of course, this is leading into the the, the Super Bowl was very prevalent, as was the Olympics. And I remember, I think I, I responded with, "Yeah, the fundamentals." Like David Robinson, my favorite basketball player of of all time, uh, for a number of reasons, character being one of them. Uh, had said on his podcast called The Fundamentals, which we'll link to in the show notes. It was a limited series podcast he did with his son, the other David Robinson, uh, was the idea was in order to be great, you have to be great at the fundamentals. And and he expanded upon that by saying, like, I don't want to deal with a guy who's trying to do a 360 dunk and, you know, if he can't do a chess pass or a bounce pass. Like, if he can't do that stuff, then I can't trust him in any other realm. Um, the fundament. why do we struggle with that idea of, the roots that you talk about in the book, the idea of the roots so in, in, because we're always looking up and going, Oh, I want to get, I want to get this done. I want to reach this level, but we fail to, and I mean, I'm being a general generalizing here, but we fail to say, wait a minute, I need to start at, you know, I need to establish a strong base so that I can really hit that level and sustain it. I think that it's just so embedded in our culture to look up. If you even think about language, I'm feeling down is you're sad. I'm feeling up. You're happy. I'm high energy. Good. I'm low energy. Bad. You come across a mountain. No one looks at the base of the mountain. Everybody looks up at its peak. You have a beautiful apartment building that's a high rise. Everyone is looking up at the peak. Everyone wants to go to the penthouse. No one gives a crap about the underground foundation. But without the underground foundation, without the base of a mountain, whenever there's rough weather, the whole thing is fragile, it can topple. And even under normal circumstances, it will topple over time because the seasons change. I argue that us humans are very much the same. So we spend a lot of time focusing on our metaphorical penthouses, the bright and shiny objects. And as a result, it often cannibalizes time and energy spent on the fundamentals. And I think what we've seen particularly recently with um, pretty high rates of burnout and resignation at work is a lot of people's fragility and not always their fault. There's a lot of structural reasons for this too, but it's coming to bear right now. And people are realizing that I can't keep working can't keep living in the way that I had been. And I think a lot of that is this neglect of the fundamentals. Um, one particular thing that has become extremely salient, particularly in pandemic times, is just the importance of community and how even before the pandemic, so many people were prioritizing efficiency over community because community is really inefficient. It takes time to build relationships Often the best relationships are those where there's no end goal. Like you're not trying to get something out of someone mm -hmm. and all that takes time. And if you're focused on crushing it and being at your best and getting good output done at work, you might neglect the time to build that community. But then when something like COVID happens, or if you have an illness in the family or a loss in the family, or even if you just mess up at work and you don't have that support system, well, that's when you crumble. How hard have you found it to stay grounded? I mean, this has got to be something that's a, it, it's like, uh, you know, I've talked about meditation with meditation experts before and you can't win meditation. Like that's the other thing is we want to just, right. It's yeah. a practice. And, and it's, I'm glad that you mentioned it because it was definitely a conversation with my book publisher that at first we were going to maybe call the book, get grounded mm -hmm. or just like grounded. Yep. 
And I argue that it's not, you don't get grounded. Like it is a practice. Hence the, the ultimate title ended up being the practice of groundedness because you're never fully grounded. You have to keep on coming back to, hey, this is what matters to me. This is what's important. This is where I want my time and energy to go. These are the pitfalls. This is the stuff that I get tempted to leave behind when I'm climbing that I know I can't. And day in, day out, you just practice. And some days are better than others. When I think about productivity, uh, you know, and, and anyone who's listened to this show before knows that, you know, I don't, be, you talked about efficiency and I don't, efficiency to me is a byproduct of productivity. It's not the, like, it's not the definition. Sure. You look up in the dictionary and that's what it, you know, it efficiency and effectiveness. I, I've always said that productivity is about intention plus attention, the active linking mm -hmm. of those things, those things you can have agency over as opposed to say time or, or cause time, as we know, moves on whether we want it to or not. Um, but the other thing that we focus on, and again, this I think comes back to this achievement mindset that we struggle with is this, and you mentioned like the this or that as opposed to this and that, we focus on quantitative productivity as opposed to qualitative, right? So this idea of, and as you go through the book, there's a lot of like, take a moment to think, take some time to pause, sit, and there's, I would bet. And I'd, I'd love to hear, you know, some of the feedback you got. Like, I don't have time to do this. What are you talking about? Like, the pace of the world doesn't allow me to, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Because of that quantitative, I've got to get as much done as possible, as opposed to I need to make sure I'm doing or or doing the right things or being the right person or, you know, and, and focusing my um, focusing my precision on what really are are the priorities in my life. Mm. And it takes time to be able to discern what those priorities are. Mm -hmm. And if you're so focused on quantitative productivity and output, then it makes no sense to spend the time reflecting on what actually matters to you. Uh, it's, this is bringing to mind the mid-1900s mid uh, sociologist and psychologist and philosopher Eric Fromm, who talked about productive activity. Mm -hmm. And Fromm's productive activity sounds a lot like your kind of intrinsic productivity, mm -hmm. where he would say that it's more of an internal feeling of I'm doing what I want to be doing right now. I'm using my skills, my inherent capacities well. That is winning. The outcome of that will take care of itself. Um, another way to think about this, I know from when we were chatting offline, you're, you're a sports guy is there's the Michael Jordan way of striving, which is so obsessive and outcomes-focused. And then there's the Steph Curry or Giannis Antetokounmpo way of striving, which is so much more about having fun along the way and really enjoying the ride and being in the process. Mm -hmm. And we tend to lionize people like Jordan, but we forget that there are all these other ways to really like perform at one's highest level while not completely becoming so obsessed with outcomes in a way that, that I argue for most people is quite unhealthy. You know, I, um, as I was walking to my friend's house to watch the Super Bowl this year, because I'm a Bengals fan, and I honestly, as I was listening to this audiobook, not your audiobook, but I'll sh share which one in a moment, um, I'm thinking, am I jinxing this? Because we've lost two Super Bowls. When I say we, of course, it's not me, but the Bengals have lost two Super Bowls to the very team that this person coached, <laughs> am I jinxing it for a third time? And the, the book I was listening to, it was Bill Walsh's The Score Takes Care of Itself. And one thing that struck mm. me, and I think that this is maybe one of the ways to kind of um, create a culture 
but almost like tricking someone in a way. So I'm listening to Joe Montana's introduction, and he says that Bill Walsh was all about perfection. Like, Mm -hmm. if you strove for perfection, then you would hit excellence. But if you strove for mediocrity, you know you wouldn't be good at all. And because he, Bill Walsh prided himself so much on being a teacher, I wonder, and I mean, there's no way to know this because Bill's no longer around, but I wonder if it was, I know that perfection is not attainable. It's just not, right? But if I create this culture that kind of indicates it, is or indicative of that, and I'm consistent with it, we're going to hit the level that I know we can hit. We've created a culture and environment, all that stuff. I think is that might be a better way to try to get to that level. And it allows it because there is a level of groundedness. Like here's, here's the foundation and this will allow us to achieve it. And I mean, his success speaks for itself. Right. And, and again, the title of the book, the score will take care of itself. I think speaks volumes in that regard. Right. Mm-hmm. I write about the, the, the goal is the path and the path is the goal, mm. which is just a very like hippie. And every once in a while, I put together a pithy sentence like that way of saying that, if you're so focused on a concrete end goal that's measurable, winning a Super Bowl, getting promoted to vice president, publishing a book, having a platinum album, whatever it is, well, you really set yourself up for a lot of anxiety because the more you attach your identity and your sense of performance to that goal, the more important it becomes that you achieve it. And when you're in that state, psychologists call this a threat mode. So if your identity is under threat, then you really like want to win, need to get promoted. And if you don't, then there's this enormous letdown that totally just knocks you off the path. And even if you do succeed, well, then the question is, well, what's next? Because it's never really enough. So I argue that much better than pursuing goals is actually to have a set of principles that are never ending, such as excellence, um, fundamentals, authenticity, creativity, And then you can always practice those principles and you set goals based on, do they allow you to live those principles? So a lot of people say, here's the goal I want to accomplish. And then here are the principles that are going to get me there. What I try to say is here are the principles I want to live by. These are the kinds of goals I ought to pursue that will let me manifest those principles. Um, Another thing that I talk about often with some of the athletes that I, I know and I've worked with is you know, the best goal is to be as good as possible. Mm-hmm. And you can't keep it too ambiguous, right? Because then it's like, oh, I'm as good as possible. I failed this, that, or the other. So it's not to say that we, we ought not to have these very measurable um, arbiters of success, but they, they ought to be viewed as mile markers or pieces of information in service of this larger goal, which is to be as good as possible. In the case of Bill Walsh, to be perfect. I like the word excellence because there's this long history from um, from ancient Greece around arete or arete, which is how they 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 talked about excellence, which was more than outward achievement. It was getting the most out of yourself. Mm-hmm. Managing passwords can be a real headache, right? Think about it. Every website requires a new password. Each one needs to be unique, secure, and somehow memorable. But there's a better way. Welcome to the world of 1Password, where your entire company can generate strong, unique passwords, store them securely, and access them across any device without ever needing a reset. Imagine never having to click Forgot Password again. With 1Password's award-winning design, managing passwords becomes a breeze for you and your entire team. 
It's trusted by millions, including top companies like IBM and Slack. Here's the best part. My listeners can try 1Password for free for two weeks. Right now, get your free trial at onepasswordcom slash ProductiveConvo. Secure your passwords and simplify your online security with 1Password. Are you a small business owner struggling to find the right talent for your team? I've been there, and I know how challenging it can be. That's why I recommend LinkedIn Jobs. It's not just any job board. It's a community where you can find professionals who are the perfect fit for your business, many of whom aren't checking other job sites. In fact, 70% of LinkedIn users aren't visiting other leading job sites, making LinkedIn your best bet for finding top talent. With LinkedIn Jobs, you can post your job and reach qualified candidates quickly. 86% of small businesses find a qualified candidate within 24 hours. And now... You can post your job for free at linkedin.com slash conversation. That's right, for free. Don't miss out on finding top talent. Post your job for free at linkedin.com slash conversation today. Terms and conditions apply. Starting an online business or expanding your physical storefront online has never been easier thanks to Shopify. This global commerce platform supports you at every stage of your business journey. From launching your online shop to managing a million orders, Shopify is there to simplify and accelerate your growth. It's not just about selling products. Shopify helps you manage every aspect of your business with their all-in-one e-commerce platform and in-person POS system. But that's not all. Shopify helps you convert visitors into customers with the best converting checkout process on the internet, which performs up to 36% better than other platforms. And now a special offer for my listeners. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash timecrafting, all lowercase. Whether you're just starting out or looking to scale up, Shopify is the perfect partner for your business. It's kind of like Aristotle with flourishing, right? As opposed to happiness. Yes, right? it's, like that. it's all from that same era, 100%. Right, right. Now, now um, it's, it's, it's interesting as we, as we kind of go through some of this stuff, the idea of the principles you talk about the six principles of groundedness in the book and we'll get to them but i want i want to i want to ask you because as someone who studied this for an extended period of time which of those principles do you find the most challenging for yourself to stick to oh patience without a doubt you were really for good for all the reasons but, that you were saying earlier you were really good at the top of the call while i was buying foo fighter tickets i got to give you yeah that. but that's but that's not the kind of patience i'm talking yeah. about i okay. can be patient in the moment with someone right no problem. It's patience around, um, I am here and I want to get there in some area of my life and I want to be there faster. Even though I wrote a freaking book on this, there's so much that subconsciously tells us that like speed is the goal and that the goal is not the goal. Speed is the goal. Mm -hmm. So for me, patience is really challenging. Um, and it manifests not just in like bigger ways, but even in smaller ways. It's like I, I always respond to emails like right away and there's no need for this, Yeah. but it's just like this inertia of like, oh, something came in, I want to complete it. And then when it's completed, it's not like I like, huh, no, it's on to the next thing. And I think that another reason that it's challenging for me and, and a lot of the executives that I coach too, is there's this feeling, and I'm sure you see this all the time in your practice, Mike. There's this feeling of like wanting to give it your all and have a good day so that when four, five, six, seven, whatever o'clock rolls around, you can sit down and really just feel content. It's like an athlete that can say, I left it all out there and like I'm, I'm pleased with my performance. 
And there are so many little things that create the illusion of working hard throughout the day Inbox that zero. is actually just speed and rushing, such as email yep. versus like slower productivity, which is actually like scroll the emails. I'm not going to respond. I don't care if the essay doesn't run until Friday. I'm going to work on this thing in front of me. Um, and particularly as a creative and an entrepreneur, there is a pressure to share your work and to show your work. And that is generally in like a very speed orientation. In Twitter, it's 280 characters. Like by definition, it's fast. Yeah. So it's hard to get out of that fast mode for me and to get into the, for the next six hours, I might do nothing but write two good paragraphs and have one insight. But if I zoom out for long-term productivity, that's the best thing possible. And, and so a great example is sitting, reading your book, right? Like sitting to read a book, it, knowing full well, okay, so let's, let's dive in a little bit deeper to this. Um, I use Blinkist, which I absolutely love. I mean, I've got Oh, short- no, this will be good. I can't stand Blinkist. No, 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 no. But I also have, I mean, they also have a short cast of this podcast, so they may actually <laughs> make it. Oh, that no. would be ironic. <laughs> They're going to come they after pro- me. They probably won't do it now that you've said it because we're leaving <laughs> that in. But nonetheless, so the thing about Blinkist is it reminds me of when I was in school and we had like Cliff's Notes, right? Or Cole's Notes, mm-hmm. right? Um, which in the pace of that period of time where you're trying to study multiple things and da, 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 and you're, you're, there's also social stuff you're trying to get with as a teenager. I get that. Right. But I'm sitting here going, okay, I have Blinkist and sure enough, your book is on Blinkist. It's not just this one. There are other books on Blinkist. So I'm like, okay, I could number one, go onto Blinkist and get the Cliff's notes of this book, but will that serve the conversation? Mm-mm. And that's why I had that initial reaction. Right. And I'll step back. And I'm not just stepping back because now you're telling me that, like, the podcast is on Blinkist. I think that, again, I'm going to practice what I preach here. This sure. is non-dual. Yep. Not either or. For people, that that's their only exposure to these ideas. And there's no other chance that they'd be interested in books or any of this, personal growth, productivity, whatever, then it's unequivocally a good thing. Or, or if, if they're going to use it as a measuring stick to say, Hey, you know what? And I've used it this way. I'm like, Oh, I I like this. I want to go deeper. I'll go buy the book. Right. Yes. Yes. And I was going to get there hundred percent where it becomes problematic is if Blinkist takes on that inertia of, Oh, I can read a thousand book summaries in a year. And then it cannibalizes time spent for actually reading a full book. Mm -hmm. And I, I think this is also true of, um, I'm going to make a parallel that at first might seem crazy, but I don't think so, like mental health. Mm -hmm. So there are these new apps and app-based companies where you can like get a therapist immediately and you can text with a therapist and all this stuff. And if you are someone that doesn't have access to therapy and that is your intro into getting help and you otherwise would not be able to get any help, it is unambiguously a good thing. It is probably saving lives. I'm sure it is. That said... If you are someone that could benefit from actual having one in-person therapist that you really work with and go deep, but you don't because the apps let you do it on the subway on the way into work, then it's a bad thing. Exactly. And so, yeah, yeah, so, yeah. So it's like it, it really is either or if it's an access point or if it's truly all you can get, it's great. But if you get caught up in the speed and the inertia, like reading is not meant to be like an optimization field. Neither is therapy. So there's like this real tension. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't and I don't think I think anyone that says it's all good or all bad isn't thinking um, yeah. completely about it. Well, and, and I mean, to the therapy point, I mean, I've w- recently watched the movie Ordinary People, 
with Mary Tyler Moore and Donald Sutherland. And Judd Hirsch plays the therapist for the Timothy Hutton character. Um, and that whole movie was about him seeing and getting and having that breakthrough. That wouldn't happen to, I believe it wouldn't have happened with when you use an online you know, service per se. It might, but it might also take a heck of a lot longer, which is ironic when you think about it to a degree, right? Because you're doing yeah. it to kind of get the, I, I need to do this here. This will get me the quick, quote, quick win. But because there's no energy, the energy, you can't trade off that energy, right? Yep. And again, to your point, I think that if it's the only access point, especially when we couldn't go see people in person during COVID-19, right. absolutely. And, and what's interesting is that, again, when you, go, when you go back to the reading point, I wouldn't have found the playlist, the album from Michael Posner. I wouldn't have found that if, because it's not mentioned in Blinkist. And here I am going, oh, and it directly correlates to something that, that I think people have done leading up to this point when it comes to like the Beatles get back record, right? Like I was, I watched the get back documentary. You can't like, there's YouTube clips of it, which I think are fantastic, but there was nothing quite like being in watching that thing from beginning to end intently and seeing songs being born and be like, you lose yourself in that. That's that state of flow, right? And most people, I think they associate flow now. I'd love to hear your thoughts on this. I've had Stephen Kotler mm -hmm. on the show before and he, he, we didn't get into this part, but I think flow to me isn't just about like people. I think they associate with it. I want to get into flow because I've got this work I've got to do. Right. Like I want to mm. be in flow. Whereas, I mean, flow happens when you're playing with your kids and, and you're just in that moment. Right. I mm -hmm. have we have we maybe when it comes to this and this might be getting a little bit away from have we kind of commoditized this idea of flow as opposed to like just, you know, letting it be what it is supposed to be? I think I think in, in many circumstances, yes, there's probably an element of truth to that. I think the great paradox is that. um Based on the work that I've done, the number one arbiter characteristic quality of flow is a sense of egolessness. Right. So you lose a sense of self. It's just happening. Play is happening. Writing is happening. Basketball is happening. If you're so worried about being productive or the outcome or having a good game or getting into flow, you're never going to get into flow because the you that is worried, that's your identity. That's your ego. And as long as that's driving the cart, then flow won't happen. So part of the reason that flow often arises naturally is because it requires this I, you, be, I need, I want to get out of the way. Yep. So yeah, I think like you sit down to write and you get in flow great, you don't know, but putting that pressure on yourself to get into flow is the very thing that will stop you from getting into flow. We talk about this all the time in meditation. It's like the key to meditation is to try hard enough, but not try too hard. Yep. Because if you try too hard, then you're like, oh, is that my breath? Oh, did I just have enlightenment? Did I just have a moment? Oh, wait, now I'm thinking again versus just like hold it lightly. That's why I had to bail um, on Muse because Muse yeah, felt it, to me it, like I was trying to win. Like I've got to right. hear more birds. I'm like, wait a minute. That's not the point of what right, going exactly. on Right, exactly. Um, in, in ancient Eastern parables, they talk about you want to string the loop not too tight, but not too loose. And I think that's like a really good way to think about getting into getting into flow. I've never said, I hope I get into flow and then get into flow. <laughs> so I think you can give yourself the conditions to do it, right? Yeah. Minimize distraction, all that good stuff. Um, but yeah, I think kind of dropping, dropping that goal, that bright, shiny object. Hmm. Um, 
in favor of just giving yourself the best chance. Um, you bring up self-compassion in the book as well. Like, I, we, I mean, we have the the principles that we'll talk about in a second, but um, I think I'm I'm curious because we've heard a lot about empathy over the last mm-hmm. you know several years, and then um, I can't remember the gentleman name. Is Paul Paul something against empathy? I think is the name of the book. Yeah, I know exactly what book you're talking yeah, about. Yeah, I can't remember his last name right now, but I mean. I had a conversation with somebody who has studied like behavioral stuff. And he said, he's more into what he's doing than to say what Brene Brown's doing about empathy. And I'd love to, Mm -hmm. when you, when I see the word compassion now, my brain automatically flips to what is, how does that factor into number one, the way, you know, productivity, the way we manage time and our attention, all that stuff and our intentions. But in this case, how does compassion affect groundedness? I'm so glad that you're asking um, this question. It's one of my favorite topics to talk about. So I think that there, and it's going to come all the way back to non-dual thinking again. It's a theme throughout the book. There's two schools of thought in most personal development, business, whatever, growth, self-help sections of the bookshop. And same thing with podcast. There's Jocko Wilnick, Mm -hmm. former Navy SEAL, wake up at four in the morning, do your push-ups, Everything requires self-discipline. If you don't have self-discipline, you're going nowhere. And there's um, the let's all hold hands and sing Kumbaya and everything is about love and anti-ambition, anti-excellence. Let's all just be kind and love ourselves. It's either or. Truly, I did this research for writing my book. I went to Barnes and Nobles. This is before COVID. And like you see all these books. And it's completely antithetical to all the research and the ancient wisdom traditions, which teach it's both and. If you want to do something hard, you will need self-discipline and you will need self-compassion. Now, why? Because when you're doing something hard, it's freaking hard and you're going to fail and you're going to be uncomfortable. And if when that happens, you can't be kind to yourself, then all you're doing is prolonging the rumination or the doubt or the pain of failure instead of saying, holy shit, this is fucking hard. It's hard to be a human. This is what's happening right now. I'm going to give myself a pat on the back, be kind to myself, love myself, and that's precisely what's going to allow me to keep pushing. So self-discipline and doing hard things takes a lot of courage. And if you can't be kind to yourself when you fail, then you will burn out. So I actually think that Jocko Wilnick has a lot to say that makes sense. And all the kumbaya, I don't read as much of that, but let's all hold hands. I think that they have a lot that makes sense. And I think that when you bring them both together, that gives you the best chance to be grounded on the path. Because when you fall off, you're never completely falling off. So it's like this overarching principle of be as good as possible, be excellent, set some goal that becomes the path. That's the first thing to help you from not totally falling off. And then also realize that, yes, it's going to take a lot of self-discipline, but you better be kind to yourself too. Because if you can't be kind to yourself when you fail, you won't last long. Absolutely. Yeah. Spot on. I mean, I listen to David Goggins and I'm like, all right, that's, there's some really good things I could try there. I am not going to do all the other things. <laughs> David yeah, Goggins but it just goes to show like yeah. how, how either or our yeah. thinking is too and everything, because like yep. you zoom out beyond just individual productivity and you look at, at least here in the States, so much of the discourse on politics. Oh, it's, and it's, not in, like it's in Canada too. Crazy, like authoritarian nonsense, yeah. but like, true conservatism versus true progressivism, you often hear a lot on the left that everything is structural, no personal responsibility. And on the right, you hear it's only personal responsibility, nothing structural. 
Most things are both. Yep. Some things are more to one than the other, for sure, but most things are both. And if we can't acknowledge the bothness of it, we're never going to get these things right as people or societally. Well, and, and I mean, as we're recording this, we've just ha- in Canada, there's been some, you know, protests that have been. And what's interesting is it's not just it's the way it's presented too. like I had a conversation with someone, oddly enough, on Twitter who was like, Canada, Canada's turning into China. I'm like, what are you where are you hearing this? Where are you seeing this? And it's what was presented. I'm like, actually, I live here and this is what seems to be happening, but I'm not 100 percent sure either. And see, I think that's the other thing, too, is that. Um, and this goes into one of the actually one of the principles, um, which we'll 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 get into vulnerability. It's okay to not be one hundred percent sure that you are correct on something, and mm-hmm. and and to admit that I think there's a lack in that right now, especially in the context of you know like the it's either this way or that way. I mean Benjamin Hardy, who I've had conversations with before, has a book called Willpower Doesn't Work, and I'm like that's not true. It does work, but it doesn't work 100% of the time or on its own. And you even mentioned that in the book, willpower needs a hand. You know, Mm -hmm. it can't not, you can't just, so let's, let's talk. Can we talk a bit about the vulnerability aspect? And, and you actually even said, you know, you presented yourself one way. We all do. And Goffman, you you quote Goffman in here, Canadian. Mm -hmm. Um, (laughs) And, and the idea of here's who I am and, oh, wait, maybe that's not a hundred percent true. Um, or it's not 100% accurate all the time, um, or it's only part of it. And again, this kind of goes back into the duality idea. So can we touch on that a bit in terms of groundedness? Because I think it's a piece that people really need to kind of wrap their heads around and be okay with. Yeah, so let's do it. So Irving Goffman, sociologist, wrote a book in the late 1950s that made the case for having a front stage self and a backstage self. Mm-hmm. And the front stage self is our performative self that we bring to social situations, and our backstage self is who we really are. And Goffman's whole argument was that the wider the chasm between these two, the more cognitive distress we experience, and actually the weaker we are. So when you zoom out and think about that in terms of intellect and being okay with being wrong and intellectual humility, there's a direct line. Because if you can't be vulnerable... And if you can't acknowledge that perhaps you're wrong, perhaps you need to change your mind on something, then any counterfact to your belief becomes a world-ending, identity-crushing data point. And like any animal under threat, you will do everything you can to marshal every resource not to have your identity totally blown up by admitting you're wrong. Mm -hmm. Whereas if you can be vulnerable and have some intellectual humility and say, oh, like, Maybe, maybe I'm not 100% true on this. Maybe I'm not 100% right on this. Then when counter data comes your way, you can receive it from a more open place, make a wise decision, is this right or is this not? Now, it's not to say that like, you, know, you should be open to the fact that maybe slavery was good. Like This isn't about like moral relativism all the way down, mm-hmm. but in the debates of um, science in particular, Like, does this work? Does this not work? So again, I hope I'm not making this political. I'm not meaning to, but it's on all of our minds. Mm -hmm. So it was very clear based on all the data that masking helped with the first two variants. Then it became very clear that masking outdoors had little to no effect because COVID just does not spread outdoors. Mm -hmm. And you still see some people wearing cloth masks, which we know don't work against Omicron, and they're wearing them outside. And I'm thinking like, well... 
listen, there's nothing wrong with being extra cautionary. That's your prerogative if you want. And you don't know, maybe people have cancer, immune diseases, and there's reason for it. But I think a lot of it is like, it's become a part of people's identity, much like the anti-maskers. Yep. Right. Where it's like, actually, no, like things change. And if you can't be open to changing your mind, to changing your beliefs, then it's a pretty miserable existence because you're already, you're always guarded. You always feel threatened. You know, um, this brings back something you also brought up in the book. David Foster Wallace's This Is Water. Man, oh, it's the best. Have you seen the video essay? You must have seen oh, it. Oh, yeah. Oh, f- so well. Multiple actually, times. you can't see it here, but I actually have my, um, uh, I'll show it to you just when we were done here. But my, nie- um, my niece needle pointed me a goldfish on, and it says this is water underneath it. Well, you're of the best generation, man. We were talking about this a little bit, but if we can bro out for a minute, you've <laughs> yeah. got David Foster Wallace, Jonathan Franzen, yep. Chuck Klosterman, Douglas, Cop- it, Douglas but- Copeland. Well, Copeland is yeah. in the, high, uh, um, the Canadian side, and he's the older set. But yeah, Gen X, we are uh, we watched the Super Bowl halftime show. There's those memes going around. Like and I hate old- to admit it, you guys <laughs> have Gladwell and Bill Simmons, and I could listen to the two of them talk all day. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we're, uh, we're, in, we're in, and I think we've, maybe I don't struggle with, I mean, I don't struggle with this idea of stopping to think and be thoughtful and th- because there was a lot of times where it was just me. You know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. you know, latchkey kid stuff, all that stuff, you know, um, there was less of us, you know, there was a lot of here, go do your thing and just don't get in trouble. And we kind of, I did a lot of that. Um, uh, not getting in trouble, but just did a lot of going off on my own. And, and it's, it's interesting that, you know, you brought up the site, we talked about flow. I gravitated towards improvisational theater. And that's an example of if you go in with a mission, you're done. Like you're, mm-hmm. you're absolutely done. You ha- it's all about acceptance. I think that, that, and you, again, you can't win at improv. I mean, most improvisers don't, when they watch whose line is it anyway, that show, they're like, people are like, that's amazing. That's amazing. Like that was filmed for at least eight hours and they only took the best out of it because most of this stuff doesn't work because it's just done in the heat. It, it's, it's reliant on how well, you know, your craft. Right. And, mm-hmm. and I think that, um, as we get close to wrapping up here, uh, this idea of groundedness, there are elements, just like with improv, there's elements of like, here are the rules, here are the principles, like acceptance, don't block. Like if I was to say to you, you know, like, hey, that's a tree, and you go, no, it's not, it's a bird. I'd be like, well, and that's the end of the scene. Or or pimping, which you see a lot, which is this idea of I've got to take over the show. And of course, mm. that's not it works every you can bend the rules that's the other great thing it's it's not a black or white thing it's very much like you can you can get away with a bit of bending but if you outright break it you're not serving the scene or your fellow performers so when it comes to groundedness, there's some elements there too we've touched on them but i know there you you mentioned them in the book in a specific order so i'm gonna i'm gonna ask you to go through them and then of course if you've been listening, you're going to know, oh, we've already touched on a couple of these. Mm. So the first principle is to accept where you are to get where you want to go. And this is just about seeing your situation clearly, taking off the delusional rose-tinted glasses that we often wear, and realizing that if you don't start from where you are, you'll never make lasting progress because you can't start climbing a ladder from the third rung. The second principle is be present to own your energy and attention. And this is all about thinking productive activity, or in your words, true productivity, intrinsic productivity, 
instead of what I call rote productivity, which is just doing stuff for the sake of doing stuff. Mm -hmm. Talked about this with our mutual friend, Cal Newport, quite a bit. The productivity movement, like there's all the, you know, socialist bloggers that hate the productivity people, but they're totally missing the point on what actual productivity is. So I don't think anyone argues that doing stuff for the sake of doing stuff is a good way, meaningful way to live your life. But unfortunately, a lot of people get sucked into that trap. So being present, yes, it's about coming back to the moment, being mindful, but it's also about really determining what are the people, things, endeavors you want to spend your energy on, and then being productive as you can in those areas. Uh, the next principle is be patient and you'll get there faster. We definitely alluded to this, but so much of this is defining the time scale that you want to improve on. And again, it's back to my, if all I wanted to do was crush this week, I'd stay up all night and drink Red Bulls. But if I want to have a long career as a writer and a coach, I need to sleep. I need to you know, let things happen every bit as much as I make them happen. The fourth principle is vulnerable for genuine strength. And we alluded to the difference between the front stage and the backstage self, and also this notion of intellectual vulnerability. Whereas if you're so certain that you're right, then you actually become very fragile and weak because like impermanence is the first rule of Buddhism and the first rule of Stoicism and the first rule of physics. Things change. So if you're really locked in, when things change, you're screwed. Uh, the fifth principle is build deep community. I think we talked a lot about this. This so helps stay on the path and with goal achievement. Um, because when you succeed, community provides some gravity. So it, it stops your head from getting too big. And when you fail, it's a really nice cushion uh, and, and supportive structure. And then the last principle, which feels almost like a non sequitur, but there's just so much empirical research that I had to include it, is move your body to ground your mind. Um, we, we think of physical activity and movement as exercise is predominantly for our physical health, more recently for our mental health. But I argue it's really like for our mind-body system. Right. And um, again, I, I, it, it doesn't totally fit the book, but my job is to be intellectually honest. If you sit there with all the meta-analyses around physical activity from modern science, and you look at what the Greeks were saying, and the Stoics were saying, and the Buddhists were saying, none of them were saying be sedentary. And I love in ancient Greece, they did not separate physical education from psychological education. It was just all one. Um, and I think what's fascinating is like in so many of these principles, modern science is now just catching up to what they were onto. Um, so this notion of movement became a fundamental principle. Well, and, you know, I mean, one of the things I do every day is I go for a walk. And I'm yeah. so glad you mentioned that because yeah. I just... You know, I, I, I think that um, sometimes I get, I get caught up by how I conceive of movement. So, yeah, I want to be really explicit. Movement is not winning CrossFit or running marathons. It can be, but movement is simply, it, it is gardening. It is going for a brisk walk. One of the studies that I quote in the book was um, a huge meta-analysis done in 2019 that found that a 30-minute fast-paced walk, and they defined fast-paced, by, by the end of it, you're like a little out of breath. You can talk, but the conversation wouldn't be as easy as this. Yep. Gets you 99.9% .9 of the longevity benefits of any other exercise. Mm -hmm. And it's sustainable. Like, yeah, you and can it's do enjoyable. It. You can throw on a podcast. You can do music. You can do it with your friends. You're outside. You can do and, it when you're 80. You can do right. it when you're 30. Like I think that's the other thing, too. And this comes back to the idea of um, the blue zones of happiness and, and ikigai and all yeah, that stuff where it's like, work. just yeah. move. Just move. Yep. Um, that's how the longest, you know, I mean, and, and we touched on this a little bit early before we record about like, if you're doing things that, that 
are sustainable that you love doing. And we, you know, I mean, there's, there's so we could have another conversation all about that in the future, but uh, for now um, I want to leave our, our listener here with one. And I mean, again, it's going to be, it's going to say like, okay, well, Mike, this is kind of an antithesis to what we talked about, but if they wanted to start the practice of groundedness today, what is one simple action that they could take to get on that path? I actually don't think that it's antithetical at all. Um, I think that it, it, it is such an overarching point of groundedness is to ask yourself, what are your core values? What are the things that you really care about? Health, relationships, creativity. If you're religious, it might be God or spirituality. It might be science or intellect. It might be art. It might be, um, fitness. What are your core values? Come up with, I don't know, between two and five. And then ask yourself, how do I define these in very concrete terms? What does it mean to be healthy? What does it mean to be creative? What does it mean to be spiritual? And then ask yourself, are the goals that you're pursuing in your life working in service of those values? And if not, perhaps it's time to start picking some new goals that allow you to live your values. Because if you're living your values, regardless if you quote unquote succeed or fail, you'll be fulfilled, you'll be energized, you'll be happy. If you're out there doing stuff that is antithetical to your values, you'll be miserable. The book is called The Practice of Groundedness, A Transformative Path to Success That Feeds, Not Crushes Your Soul. Brad, thanks so much for taking the time to join me today. I had a great, great time. Me too. Thank you so much for having me, Mike. I'm so glad we can make it work. Thanks to Brad for joining me on this episode of A Productive Conversation. Uh, This conversation had been a long time coming. I'm glad that we were able to make it happen because I really enjoyed it. Make sure you pick up his book and make sure you check out all the things we talked about at productivityist.com slash podcast 426. While you're there, subscribe to the podcast. You could even do that from the app that you're using right now to listen to this podcast because next week we've got a really fascinating episode for you. I'm not going to spoil it for you, but it's a really fascinating and interesting conversation unlike any I've had before. So make sure you subscribe to the podcast and also... Another way you can support the show is by visiting our sponsors page and checking out our sponsors, productivityist.com slash podcast sponsors. Check out all the sponsors there, including those that you heard on today's episode. That's it for now. Until next time, I'm Mike Vardy, the host of A Productive Conversation, reminding you to stop doing productive and start being productive. See you later.